we're we're at the end of First Samuel tonight. We'll be really looking at chapter thirty-one and the first chapter of Second Samuel. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll kind of nudge about how there's poor chapter breaks. This might be a poor book break. <laughs> Remember, the book of Samuel is actually one book. It was not divided in two until uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures with the Septuagint. Uh, and so that's why chapter 31 is not a particular stopping point. It's continuing right along and why the events that we're going to read about will ultimately feel like we're right in the middle of things. Uh, it's an important uh, section, though, as we, we're coming to the end of the reign of Saul and now we are moving to the rule of David. First Samuel has been awaiting the rise of David. We've been longing for this anointed one to finally come on the scene. And 2 Samuel is going to then really look more to the rule of the anointed and what David accomplishes as this figure of Christ who is to come. As we pay attention to chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, the the scene is, is fairly interesting. Remember that Saul, wanting to know the will of God, has decided to go to a medium to conjure up Samuel to find out why is God not answering me and remember that uh, Samuel's answer was was pretty straightforward and clear you and your sons are going to be with me tomorrow the Lord has rejected you and that's why he's not answering you And, and chapter 31 then records that and we notice that God's word is going to be fulfilled as the Philistines remember were mounting up for for battle and that's why Saul decided to meet with the medium and chapter 31 describes the attack in very simple terms quite simply the men of Israel fought with with the people of the Philistines and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa verse 2 the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines struck down uh, Jonathan, Abinadab, Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And so what we have is ultimately the Philistines are victorious. Another wipeout of Israel by the Philistines like we'd seen all the way back in chapter 4. It now happens again. Again, another picture of how God is judging Israel and showing their wickedness and disobedience. Especially notable that Saul and all of his sons here now die in battle uh, against the Philistines. And it is, I think, fascinating to think about if you remember all the way back at the very beginning of this book. There was this woman named Hannah who sung a song. And we noted in that song that was found in chapter 2 that it really was like the table of contents for the book because particularly in that song she said words like, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. The Lord brings low and the Lord exalts. 
And, and that's happening here as we are watching the, the fall and the death of Saul and life now is going to be given to David. That we're seeing the one who is on the run is going to be the one who will be lifted up on the throne and the one who's been sitting on the throne is now going to be brought low and ultimately then brought to his death. The scene pictures us in, in verse 4 and telling us the way that Saul died. Apparently, in the midst of this battle, we're told in verse 3 that the archers, uh, the battle pressed on the archers, found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers, but not dead yet. And so Saul tells his armor bearer, I want you to lift your sword against me and kill me because his fear was that the Philistines would capture him and mistreat him. Well, the armor bearer says, I'm not going to do that. Not going to kill the king. I'm not going to kill you, Saul. And so Saul then takes his own sword and falls upon it and kills himself. Verse six, tell, verse five tells us when the armor bearer saw, sees that Saul has killed himself, the armor bearer kills himself as well in this just gruesome scene of the Philistines being completely victorious against the people of, of Israel. One of the sad pictures is given in verse 8 the next day. When the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his armor in the temple of Asherah and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshem. So they just take Saul and they just make a mockery of him. And ultimately describing in this scene that the gods of the Philistines have won. That's why you put the king of Israel and his body up in the wall of, of your idols and say, look, our gods are greater than, than your gods. And we know that God's going to have to answer that later on. But right now the Philistines are given this picture of victory. The reason why that's important is it will come up later in verse 11. The people of Jabesh Gilead hear about this and they go on a rescue mission. And they go retrieve the body of Saul. And they give then more of a proper burial to Saul uh, and take the bones and bury them. Verse 13 under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now, the reason why that scene is so important is because when you come to 2 Samuel chapter 1, there seems to be a whole other version of the story that happens. We're, we're told that after the death of Saul, David is over... <clears throat> In Ziklag, remember we saw him in Ziklag as he is rescuing that city, fighting against the Amalekites. Well, notice the words of verse 2 of chapter 1 of Second Samuel. And on the third day, and I hope in all of our time together we see on the third day you get this little bing of... That's always an imagery of deliverance. There's always a picture of something about this. And this is going to be ultimately the news of David's deliverance. On the third day, there comes this young man who comes out of Saul's camp. Verse 2 says his clothes are torn. There's dirt on his head. He comes to David. He falls on the ground and pays homage to him. Verse 3, David said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, well, how did it go? 
Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him this said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when I looked behind me, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered him, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside Beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Well, that's a totally different story than what was just recorded in the prior chapter and why we need these two chapters connected. The narrative has told us what has happened with Saul with archers firing their arrows and Saul asking his armor bearer to slay him who refuses to do it and Saul dies on his own sword at that time. Here comes this man who tells this whole story that is completely different and the question that arises is, Well, how do we reconcile the two? Which one is right? Is there a contradiction? And I submit to you, the solution is clear. He's not telling the truth. (laughs) For a number of reasons, the text is, I think, highlighting to us that the truth is not being told. Number one, he's an Amalekite. We don't trust Amalekites in this book. <laughs> Amalekites are never the good guys. They are to be utterly wiped out. We've seen them be terrible to the people of Israel over and over again. And so it's noted that he is an Amalekite. Number two, he describes himself as basically running around during the battle. That's not what you do in the midst of the battle. It is fascinating the description that he gives here when he says that by chance here, here the, I am on Mount Gilboa and these chariots and horsemen are all closing in on him. And you're just like walking around in the middle of the battle going, hey everybody, this is really great to watch this. Hey Philistines, hey Israelites. It's an unlikely story to think that he's just walking around Mount Gilboa while there's this massive battle going on. And here he is, and he just happens to walk upon Saul there being wounded. I think the biggest reason why he's lying is he thinks this is going to go well with David. To come to David and say, I took care of your enemy. I came across Saul and I was the one who killed him. And here's his crown. Here's his armlet. Here's the proof that he's dead. And I believe what he's expecting is a reward. Because now finally the threat to to David has been now dispatched of. You might be surprised. Ultimately what we see happening with David. Notice verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. 
And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. You will notice that David does not go, finally, Hooray, Saul is no longer a thorn in my side or let's have a party now. I can be king and finally take my rightful place on the throne. Instead, what you see is David just wailing the whole day along with his men about what has transpired that Saul is dead, his sons are dead, and the people of Israel and the armies of Israel have died in battle. Notice what David does now. In verse 13, David said to the young man who told him this, Where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your own hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Notice David turns to this man and says, How did you not fear to lift up your sword and kill the Lord's anointed? Your blood is on your own head because your own word said that you killed him. And so therefore, justice must be served. In fact, now the rest of chapter 1, perhaps even more fascinating than the response that we see in verse 11 to the news of the death of Saul. He now writes this song, verse 17, David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Israel. David writes a song and all of Israel is supposed to learn it. And the contents of the song are amazing because what David does is just proclaims the might and the glory of Saul and Jonathan. And I think we should be fascinated by that. He writes a song and says, the mighty of Israel and the glory of Israel has been slain. He then goes on to say, don't let the enemies rejoice over the fall of Saul or the fall of his sons. He continues and says, the mountains where they were slain, let there not be gladness on those mountains as the location of their death. And he even recounts the blessings of Saul. Look at verse 24. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Here's what I want you to see. David is not rejoicing over the fall of his enemy. It is impressive to see what he writes. You know, the song is not, well, that's what you get. (laughs) Or how dare you come against me 
or what goes around comes around or the Lord has done this vindication and that's what's deserved of you or anything like that. There is no joy in David. There is no victory deals. There is no, yay, God finally did something about this. He does not rejoice over the fact that his enemy has died. Very much what you see the Proverbs describe. Here's God saying, don't rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from you. I believe it is so powerful to see in David this response, this response that we have read for chapters upon chapters, the agony of what Saul has done to David. And yet even still, he will not rejoice over the fall of Saul. Now we have spent a number of times talking about these pictures of the anointed. This is another section where we could spend a lot of time talking about, look at what God is foreshadowing in these pictures. But I want to zero in on one particular picture. And with that one particular picture, I think we'll see a lot about how that is to look in our lives. It's found in chapter 1 and verse 16, where David simply says, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The title of the lesson is The Death of the Anointed, because I want you to notice what David says. The person who kills the Lord's anointed is worthy of death. That's the hub of what all of this is playing up to. Saul dies and the armor bearer is unwilling to raise his sword against the Lord's anointed. And Saul then must do it himself. But this man comes up with a story thinking he's going to be rewarded that he will say, I killed the Lord's anointed. And David says, how dare you consider that you would do something like that? And we've seen that in David's own life. David had many opportunities to take Saul's life. And he doesn't do it. The message that death is deserved for the one who kills the Lord's anointed. Please think about how often the writers of the New Testament and the apostles put their finger on that truth. When they are preaching the gospel, Peter, Acts chapter two, verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Now he's just right to the point. You killed the Christ. You killed the anointed one. You killed the one that had come for rescue. 
Later on, second sermon of Peter, Acts 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified His servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when He had decided to release Him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Notice the same proclamation. Pilate was going to release him. You decided to kill him. In fact, take your mind back to that scene and remember what happened there. Matthew twenty-seven twenty-four. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Listen to the words of the people. All the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. And I think that's what Peter's putting his finger on. You killed the anointed. And do you know what is worthy of happening to you when you kill the Lord's anointed? Death. That's the message. That's why you see the men in Acts 2 before Peter say, what shall we do? We know that we have killed the Lord's anointed. We are worthy of judgment. We are worthy of death. What are we going to do because we've done this? I have always found this scene in Matthew 27 just terrifying to think about. The blood of Christ. His blood be on us. And on our children. Now, I want to make an application with this, but I have to freeze this thought for a minute. And I want us to think about Saul and Saul's life. And this will all then, I think, come around to what this message of these chapters are about. We've seen now, finally, the death of Saul. And we have read many, many chapters of Saul's failure whose failure is is really quite widespread. One of the things that I think you see that is an interesting failure of Saul is you only see him seeking the Lord when he's in trouble. You don't see him seeking a relationship with God. You know, what a contrast between David, where we've been reading about, and he inquired of the Lord and is seeking the will of the Lord is adjusting to God's will. And Saul, if he doesn't like God's will, he still does what he wants. If he doesn't want to kill all the Amalekites, I'm not going to kill all the Amalekites. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. If it looks like it's not worth waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, I'll offer the sacrifice myself. I will do what I think is right. And think about what we've seen with Saul, 
how many chances God had given Saul to repent. Jonathan confronted Saul, telling him, David's not trying to kill you. David is on your side. You even have the priests of Nob saying, David is on your side. He's your right hand man. You have David himself repeatedly telling Saul, I'm not coming after you. I'm on your side. Do not continue to hunt me down. God, for years is giving Saul an opportunity to repent. And I want you to think about this. How many times does Saul say, okay, but no life change actually happens? Jonathan will convince Saul, okay, I won't go after him. You're right. Jonathan, go tell David. It's all good. It's all good. No, it's not. David will cut off his robe Saul says, okay, you're right. You, you, you could have killed me. I will never hunt you again. Next chapter, here he goes chasing him again. Chapter 26, same thing. I'm not coming after you. And Saul has refused. He will say the words, but he never changes. There is no change in his heart. There's no change in his behavior. He says what is good for the moment, but never really has a relationship with God. That was true as we looked at on Wednesday night when it came to Samuel's confrontation. You're right, I've sinned. Now honor me before the people. (laughs) No life change. Still right in his own eyes. Never truly repenting. Did you know that the scriptures say that we can also kill Christ. We've noted that the highlight of the text is worthy of death is the one who kills the Lord's anointed. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit And have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fall away since on their own they are crucifying again the son of God and holding him in contempt. I don't know if you remember when we went through Hebrews, I slowed down on that line. That is an amazing line. Those who are not repentant, crucifying again the Son of God and holding Him in contempt. And what I want us to see is that what Saul has done is ultimately a picture of that. It is a picture of how we resist God and how we refuse to be what God has called us to be. We kill Him when we choose to resist God's will. And we only want God for what He can do for us. Saul is just a model of this. We uh, see him basically treating God like the magic eight ball. You know, should I go up and be successful? You know, maybe. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't seek out the will of God. He doesn't want to do what God says. 
He just wants to do what's right in his own eyes and get Samuel to validate it or get somebody around him to validate it. Try to even get this witch to validate it. Whatever it takes to be able to do what he ultimately wants to do. And what you see in Saul is that we can do the exact same thing. And ultimately what I want us to think about is that the path of Saul is a very easy path to take. It's very easy to live our lives looking like we care about God, but we're resisting His will. We're in the relationship for what God can do for us. We do what's right in our own eyes, and we never make a true life change. The writer of Hebrews says we're holding Christ in contempt. When we do that, that we are crucifying again the Son of God. When there is this lack of repentance and we just blaze straight on ahead toward what we want to do. The words that were said to Saul, I think were probably the worst words you could have ever heard. When Samuel tells him, The Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. You think of a more frightening idea? The Lord has turned from you, Saul, because you're right in your own eyes and you'll do what you want to do. And you're not in a relationship with God. You just want him to say yes to you for whatever you're doing because there's no true life change in you, Saul. The Lord has turned from you. And has become your enemy. What a chilling thought. And I want us to remember that Jesus gave the exact same warning. That there would be people who would have the externals. Did we not do many miracles in your name and prophesy in your name and do these deeds in your name? And Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It should just chill our minds to recognize that when we choose our own way and our own path like Saul, we're worthy of death because we are standing against the Lord's anointed. We are raising our hand against him. We are holding him in contempt. We are crucifying him again. Later on, the book of Hebrews would say that we are considering essentially the spirit of grace and the blood of the covenant as profane and common and as nothing. What a terrifying thought. That we would live our lives in such a way that we would look at what the anointed has done. We would say, we don't care. We want to live our own way. We want to go our own path. We will look like we're the people of God. But there's truly no life change. We need to seek a relationship with God right now through prayer, through our worship, through our study of his word. And never turn back from that. What a scary thing Hebrews 6 6 says. That if we turn back, 
crucifying the Son of God all over again. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we learn so much from David and from Saul. We learn much from the failures of Saul. And we see how easy it is to live a life like Saul. It's easy to live a life of a veneer and not have a true relationship with you. God, I pray that we would have our hearts convicted if that be true of us. That we would desire a relationship with you. Help us to honestly evaluate ourselves. Help us to honestly see if it is our desire to do your will or our own. Help us to see if we have true repentance or not. Help us to see if we desire you or if we desire what we want to do in this life. Help us to not be deluded by sin. But Lord, wake us up. Lord, how can we not be sorry for our sins? For as often as we've chosen our own way, we've chosen to crucify your son again. Lord, we do not want to be your enemy. We want to be your friend. We beg you, Lord, that you would always shine your face upon us. Lord, we pray that we would seek you with all of our heart. God, give us repentant hearts. Give us hearts that are willing to confess our sins to you, to come before you with clean hands. Purge us of hypocrisy. Purge us of being double-minded. Help us in our effort to get the worldliness out of our lives. And may we increase in our devotion and desire for you. Lord, we thank you for the example of David. Help us to not gloat over our enemies, to never be joyful over the misery of others. To see that every person is a soul in your sight. That we desire good for all people and everybody that we know. That we want your goodness in their life. And we want them to come and serve you. God, forgive us for how many failures we have. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy to give us another chance again and again to forgive us, to pick us up, to push us forward. Thank you for your son that makes that possible. Thank you for loving us like you do. How can we understand how much you love us? How can we understand how you forgive us so often? How can we understand how much you come after us and seek us and desire us to be in relationship with you? Give us the heart to desire it back. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.